Amen. Okay, so go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. We're going to read through the chapter, and then um, we'll go as far as we can go this morning. Acts chapter 10. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And he will tell you what you must do. And when the angel had spoke to him and departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw Heaven opened in an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a, vo and a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the, man, uh, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they came, called, and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, uh, was lodge, lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, and go down uh, and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house, and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. And on the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And Peter was coming in. Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And, but Peter lifted him, lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as uh, I was sent for. I asked them, For what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, 
four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a Tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you've done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of these things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Acts chapter 10 is a pivotal chapter, and it's an important chapter to each one of us. Unless you're Jewish, Acts chapter 10 is the doorway through which salvation has come to each of us. It's the chapter that records salvation through faith in Christ being brought to the Gentiles. Way back in Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples a question. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? <clears throat> and you recall Peter's response was, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And after Peter's confession, Jesus told Peter that the understanding that uh, he had of Jesus being the Christ, the Son of the living God, that didn't come by flesh and blood, but it was a revelation of the Father. And Jesus said to Peter, Matthew 16, verse 19, he said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, Jesus wasn't saying Peter, you're the key from here on out. Whatever you say goes in heaven and in earth. You're calling the shots now. The Greek language is very clear uh, on this. When Jesus was saying, what Jesus was saying was more literally could be translated this way, that Peter, whatever you bind on earth or forbid to be done shall have already 
been bound or forbidden to be done in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth or permit to be done shall have uh, already been loosed in heaven or permitted to be done. Peter was merely the spokesperson for uh, whatever heaven had already done. But not just Peter. This was something that was given to all the disciples of Jesus. Uh, You might recall in Matthew 18, Jesus said the same thing to the disciples uh, regarding binding and loosing. uh, With one exception. Matthew 16, uh, the keys to the kingdom of heaven were given to Peter and him alone. But we need to understand the keys weren't given to him to lock up heaven. They weren't given to him to forbid entrance to heaven or to exclude someone from heaven. The keys were given to Peter for the purpose of opening up the kingdom uh, to the world. In Acts chapter 2, we saw Peter on the day of Pentecost opening the kingdom up to the Jews. We saw him preaching salvation in the name of Christ and 3,000 were saved. In Acts chapter 8, we saw a great revival happening uh, down there in Samaria. And the church in Jerusalem seemingly sent Peter down there to check it out. And as Peter goes down there, he lays hands on them and prays. And the Samaritan believers uh, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fell on those who believed. And now here in Acts chapter 10, Peter is going to share the gospel with Cornelius and all his relatives and all his close friends. Uh, that are gathered together in his home. Peter's going to share the good news, the forgiveness of sins, which is offered to all who place their faith in Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. And as he does, the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on the Gentiles. In fact, Acts chapter 10 can be called the Gentile uh, Pentecost because they're filled with the Holy Spirit in a reminiscent way, uh, in an almost identical way as it was uh, poured out on those that were present there on the day of Pentecost. But before we get started, there's one other important thing that we should note about this story. Acts chapter 10, it actually occurs about 10 years after Jesus gave his disciples what we call the Great Commission, right? Um, We read in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority had been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the of the age. In Mark's gospel, Mark 16, 15 through 16, we read a similar uh, great commission as Mark records it. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now, it's been 10 years since the disciples heard Jesus say these things. Right? It kind of makes you wonder what they've been doing for the last 10 years. This brings something up that we need to understand, that we need to remember. God's ways aren't, aren't our ways. 
His plans are not our plans, the Bible says. And his timing uh, isn't our timing. And frequently that's the case. You know, uh, his timing doesn't even seem to be close to my timing. And we, we can't forget this. We, we must never, ever fail to understand that God's delays are not his denials. Right? God's intent from the foundation of the world was to bring salvation to the world, to the entire world, to all who are willing to place their faith in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary atonement. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that this is the revealed plan of God. Right? Keep your finger here in Acts chapter 10 and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42. We're going to read uh, some verses from Isaiah 42. We're going to read Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 7. It says, Behold my servant. In previous studies, we've seen that this is a title that's given to Jesus. It's given to the Messiah. He says, Behold my servant uh, whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. And he'll bring forth justice uh, for truth. Uh, I love that verse. He, uh, a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoking flax he will not quench. I just love that about our Lord. Verse 5. Thus says God the Lord. Who created the heavens, stretched them out. Who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you to righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you uh, and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prisons. Those who sit in darkness from the prison uh, house. So that's God's plan is to give uh, the Messiah as a light to the Gentiles. Now turn over a couple of pages here and look at one of my favorite verses. It's in Isaiah 49. It's found in verse 6. And it says, indeed, he says, and it's Jehovah who says this. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant. Again, speaking in regards to the Messiah. Indeed, he says, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved one of Israel. Saving and restoring Israel in God's mind, that's too small of a thing. So the Lord says, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And I think it's interesting when Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13 were being confronted in Antioch uh, regarding the message that they preach, they quote Isaiah 49 verse 6, right? They quoted this verse and then explained that that was God's plan, that the message was to go to the Jews first. The message of salvation was to go to the Jews first, and then he was to be sent to the Gentiles, right? Yeah, we don't want to lose sight of just how gracious our God is, how loving he is, how wonderful our God is, especially in times of troubles, in the midst of difficulties that we face. He hasn't forgotten you. 
right? He hasn't forgotten his plan or his promises regarding you, even though it seems like he's delaying. His thoughts towards you are good ones. And during those times uh, of seeming delay, he's at work bringing things uh, to his desired end, right? He's at work working on your behalf. Ultimately, what he's going to do will be a greater blessing than anything that you could imagine, right? So we need to hang in there. You need to hang in there. Don't give up. Look to him and trust in him. Now, let's go back to Acts chapter 10. And we'll start here. Acts chapter 10, verse 1 says, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Personally, I love the way this chapter begins. It says, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius. God knows Cornelius by name, right? He knows exactly where he's at. And the same is true for you and me, right? In this world with over 8 billion people now, right? We're not lost or hidden from God. We're not just another face in the crowd. He knows you by name. And not only that, he knows everything about you. He knows what you like and what you don't like. He knows what you think is funny and those things that grieve you. Uh, he knows what you like to eat and those things that you don't like to eat. He knows every hope, every desire, every dream you've ever had, as well as every dream uh, you're, you plan on ha you're not planning on having dreams, but he knows everything that is in your heart and he knows all about your future, right? He knows exactly where you're at. He knows exactly what you're going through and he loves you. You need to receive that this morning. Caesarea was a coastal town. It was built by Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a master builder. Uh, you might recall he built Masada. He built a Herodian and he began reconstruction of the temple in 20 B.C. And that construction continued through Jesus' time. He also built Caesarea and he dedicated it to Caesar. Now, Caesarea is where the Romans and the Roman governors would stay instead of staying in Jerusalem. For them, it was uh, like a little Rome away from Rome. They'd stay there because they didn't really like Jerusalem because Jerusalem was just you know, packed full of potential problems. And there in Caesarea was a man named Cornelius. And we read that he was a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. Now, the Romans had 32 such Italian regiments stationed throughout the empire. The Roman army uh, was made up of legions, and within each legion there was 6,000 men. And each legion was divided into 10 cohorts of 600 men. And each uh, cohort had six centuries of 100 men. And each century had a centurion as their leader. Now, to be a centurion, you had to be proven faithful. Uh, you, were, you were proven to be loyal. You were battle-hardened. You were proven uh, in battle. You were brave and disciplined. And you were willing to stand fast and die at your post if necessary. But Cornelius, he wasn't just 
uh, the run-of-the-mill centurion. He was special. He was a centurion of the Italian regiment. And the Italian regiment or cohorts were made up of the most loyal men that could be found among the Roman troops. I think it's interesting to note also that whenever a centurion is mentioned in the Bible, um, he's always mentioned in a favorable light. You might remember Luke chapter 7, Jesus marveled at the faith of the centurion whose servant was sick. Remember, when Jesus was going to his house, a message was sent to Jesus from the centurion. Luke chapter 7, verse 6 and 7, the centurion says to Jesus, through these messengers, Lord, uh, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Um, he says, uh, therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Remember the centurion uh, who saw Jesus crucified. And, and he heard Jesus make the seven I, uh, statements from the cross. Uh, when he saw Jesus dismiss his spirit, he said, in regards to Jesus, Matthew 27, verse 54, he says, truly this was the Son of God. And now we see Cornelius, who's a devout man and one who feared God, a man who gave to the Jewish people generously and always prayed to God. The description of Cornelius is that of, of a really good man. I mean, he, he was what was called a God-fearer, right? That's what the Jews called these types of men. Men who loved the God of Israel and were supportive of the Jewish faith, but stopped uh, just short of becoming a Jew in lifestyle and circumcision. Cornelius was a Jew, good man. He feared God and, and passed that on to his family. Uh, he gave himself and of his resources he gave. And he prayed always. But he wasn't saved. Right? He needed a savior. And I think that he knew it. I think just like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. He did all that he could do outwardly. <clears throat> but inwardly he still had a longing. Right? He still had a craving. There was still something missing. And he knew that uh, his religion wasn't enough. Sadly, too many people today think that their religion is enough. They think that their outward works of righteousness is going to gain them some favor with God. And it's just not the way it works, right? There's no amount of good works that, that can cleanse us from our sin. Salvation only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision... Uh, an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And he'll tell you uh, what you must do. Cornelius has a vision about the ninth hour. It's about 3 p.m. And uh, this was the customary time uh, of prayer for the Jews. So Cornelius, uh, he sees this angel. He has this vision of an angel of God. Uh, it's not a dream. He's not sleeping. But it's not actually happening at the same time. It, it's occurring in his mind's eye, so to speak. 
But it's so vivid that he's going to say in Acts 10.30, a man stood before me in bright clothing. Why does God use an angel to tell Cornelius to go and get Peter from Joppa? I mean, Joppa is roughly 30 miles away from Caesarea. Why doesn't God just use the angel to tell Cornelius what he has to do to be saved? And the reason is, angels can bring messages from God, but they can't share the gospel. That's not their job, right? That's been entrusted to us. Paul writes to the Corinthians church, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. He says, now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Allow me to lovingly ask you this morning, what kind of steward have you been of that which has been entrusted to you? How long has it been since you've shared the gospel the good news with somebody? A week? A month? Six months? Proverbs 11.30 says, He who wins souls is wise. And then Daniel 12.3 says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Paul taught 1 Thessalonians 2 that those people that we lead to Jesus Christ become a crown of rejoicing for us, right? The people we lead to Jesus become gems of, uh, uh, in a crown of joy, a crown that one day we'll lay down at our Savior's feet. Paul said that the people we lead to Jesus are our glory and our joy, sharing Christ. Praying with people to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. Pouring ourselves into others. Discipling them. Encouraging them to run the race. It's a great privilege that God has given to us. And I want to encourage each of you. Don't miss out on that privilege. But Gary, it's so hard. I mean, I don't, I don't even know what to say. Paul would agree with you. Towards the end of Ephesians 6, Paul asked for prayer that words would be given to him. He said, pray for me that I would speak boldly as I ought to speak. I mean, if you'll take a step of faith and open your mouth to share the gospel with people, I believe God's spirit will fill your mouth with the words you need uh, in that moment. Acts chapter 10, verse 5, Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him uh, had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. God tells Cornelius to send men to Joppa, and he's obedient to that command. But look carefully at the last part of verse 6. It says, he, speaking of Peter, will tell you what you must do. 
You know, the must there is an imperative. It has to happen, right? It reminds me of the three musts that are found in John chapter 3. Jesus told Nicodemus, John 3, 7, he said, you must be born again. That's the must of the unbeliever. The requirement for each person who uh, is to enter the kingdom of heaven uh, is that they must be born again. And for that to occur, there's a must of the Savior. Jesus said, John 3, 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Right? That's the must of the Savior. But there's still one more must in John chapter 3. It's the must of every believer. And John, uh, it was John the Baptist that said, John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now that second must there, it's in italics, meaning it's not actually there. It's been added by the publisher. Uh, it should read, he must increase, but I decrease. And that's the process of sanctification where we yield to the Spirit of God so that the life of Jesus begins to be expressed through our lives more and more each day. Verse 9, uh, we covered verses 9 through 20 last week in detail. So we'll just make a few comments as we read through them. Verse 9 says, The next day as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Peter takes time, uh, as we pointed out last week, to get away and pray, right? He goes up to the housetop. He sought out a quiet place, a place where he could quiet his heart and just spend time with the Lord, right? And in so doing, he was prepared to receive vision from God, the vision that God gave. Verse 10 says, then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound by the four corners descended to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter was hungry. And we saw last week how God uses and he desires to speak to us. He desires to use uh, things in our lives that are everyday events, you know, everyday needs, right? Now, it says that Peter says he fell into a trance. Now, I've never experienced being in a trance, but I'll, I'll try the best I can to explain what I think what's happening here. I think what's interesting uh, to note, first off, is that the Greek word used here for trance is ecstasis, right? It's where we get the English word ecstasy. You know, so I think what's going on is as Peter gets away to a quiet place um, to enjoy time with the Lord, he finds himself in a place of joyful, satisfied communion with the Lord. And he has this vision. It wasn't something that actually happened. It was, it was something that he saw again in his mind's eye. It was like uh, he shut his eye, eyes and just enjoying the time with the Lord. And uh, he sees a picture or, uh, you know, like an event begin to unfold in his mind. 
right? And again, it wasn't a dream, but it wasn't really happening either. Never experiencing a trance, but knowing something about joyful communion with the Lord. I think Peter uh, was experiencing something like that, right? Um, but on a much deeper level. Uh, he, was, he was aware of the surroundings around him. He's aware of the events going on around him. But he, he, he's focused on this vision now. And, and it had a higher degree of reality, I think. And it just began to engulf him. That's how I'd explain what's going on here. If you have a, a different idea or a better explanation, I'm actually interested in hearing from you. Uh, come up and talk to me later, please. But Peter, he falls into this trance and he sees a sheet with all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And they're probably clean and unclean animals present there on this sheet. So what does it represent? I think without question, it represents the church. All kinds of animals, wild ones, creepy ones, but also ones who are able to soar. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, uh, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Only our God can do a work like that. Only our God has the power to transform lives like that. Only our God can take a bunch of wild animals and creepy things and give them the ability to soar. Verse 13, And a voice came to him, uh, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything un or common or unclean. Peter says, not so, Lord. I find that funny, right? I don't really think you can say that, Peter. I mean, I think it's possible to say, no way, bro. I think you could say, not so, amigo. But I don't think anyone can possibly say, not so, Lord. Not so, master. Right? It just doesn't work. But Peter has demonstrated a propensity in the past of saying things before he gives it any thought. Remember when Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him after telling the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things uh, from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter, he took Jesus aside uh, and said to him, uh, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Remember in John 13, when Jesus was washing, washing the feet of the disciples, and Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Peter was a lot like many of us. I mean, I, I confess, I certainly share many of his traits, one of which is speaking at times before thinking. Maybe you can relate to that. Verse 15, and a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. 
Too often I think the church has failed in this point, right? I mean, people get saved from all walks of life. Drug abusers, prostitutes, homosexuals, adulterers. And the church at times has wanted them to change. Change the way they speak. Change the way they dress. Change the way they act, right? And there's some in the church that uh, still refuse, uh, you know, to accept those that are different. And, and they don't make any effort at all to reach out to them. So those new converts, what happens? They just turn away and they say, you know what? I gave Christianity a chance. It didn't work for me, right? And they drop out. They drop out completely uh, discouraged and disillusioned. Well, I tell you what, it's my prayer that we would never be like that. I pray that we would be a body that embraces people, that we would be a welcoming church, that we would be a loving church, you know, regardless of a person's past, regardless how they look, regardless of where they're from. You know, I pray that we would be a church that reaches out to those people who are on the fringe in an effort to draw them in because that's God's heart. I pray that we would, we would never look at each other, never look at anyone within the body of Christ and call them common, that we would never look at anyone and call them common or unclean when God has cleansed them. I think the most common area of failure uh, regarding calling something common or unclean that God has cleansed is our struggle over our past failures. I mean, often we can be tempted to look at our past failures, our mess-ups after being saved, and we can begin to condemn ourselves. You know what? I often hear myself saying, when are you going to learn, Gary? You know, how many times are you going to repeat that mistake and screw things up? And then the devil, he chimes in. He says to me, look at yourself. How can God love someone like you? In reality, it doesn't make any earthly sense how God can love someone like me. But we're not, uh, we're not to call ourselves or, or something or someone unclean, which God has cleansed, right? If you struggle in that area, boy, I tell you what, I confess, I, I do at times, right? But if you struggle in that area, then you need to remember. You need to remind yourself the Lord has washed you in his blood, right? He's forgiven you of your sins. And he promises to remember them no more. He's living in your heart and he's at work in your life. You're a special treasure to him. You're the apple of his eye. He's cleansed you. And he's not angry over your failures, but he rejoices over your growth. If you're like me, you tend to be, you know, hard on yourself. Sometimes saying things like, man, you're such a loser. How in the world could God use someone like you? How could God ever love someone like you? God would say to you, if, if that's the type of things you hear yourself saying, God would say to you, don't call common or unclean that which I've cleansed. We have to get away from the mindset that it's all about us. It's not all about you or what you've done. It's all about him and what he's done, right? It's all about grace, his unmerited, undeserved favor. We just need to receive it. We just need to embrace it. And when we do, that's what blesses God. 
When the devil brings condemnation your way, when he tells you uh, and tries to convince you that you're just unworthy uh, of God's love, boy, let that just drive you to the foot of the cross. When Paul was confronted with his failures, he confessed, Romans 7, the things that I don't want to do, I do. And he said, the things I want to do, those are the very things I don't do. He said, evil is present in me, the one who wills to do good. And then he cries out, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He says it in a state of absolute despair and absolute discouragement because he clearly saw that the man he wanted to be wasn't the man that he was. But he looked to the cross. He looked to the Savior, said Romans 7, 25. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, I like how the New Living Translation translates that verse. Uh, it says it this way. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the one who delivers. He's the one who cleanses. He's the one who who justifies. He's the one who sanctifies. He's the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Verse 16 says, this was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven again. Luke tells us this was done three times. The sheet descending, uh, rise, kill and eat. Peter, not so, Lord. It was done three times. That's the way I read it, right? I mean it to take that the whole scenario repeated three times. Peter says three times, not so, Lord. It's actually very, very encouraging to me because Peter's a slow learner, and so am I, right? Peter was saved. He was full of the Holy Spirit, right? Peter had been used greatly uh, by God, and yet he was still Peter. God didn't use Peter because he's perfect, right? He used him because his heart was to know God, to be surrendered to God, to be available to God, to work in and through him. You know what? God isn't waiting for us to be perfect. He wants to use us now. And if God can use someone like Peter, then he certainly can use men and women like you and I. But the question is, are you available? Do you seek to be surrendered to him? Are you hungering for him? Are you spending time with him, open and ready to receive whatever it is that he wants to say to you? Right? That's the type of man and, and woman God wants to use. Those are the traits of the men and women that God uses mightily. Verse 17, now when Peter uh, now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius uh, had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing. For I have sent them. Again, we, we've looked at this in previous studies. God is working both sides of the equation, right? It's the way he does things. 
He spoke to Cornelius by an angel. And at the same time, uh, you know, he spoke to Peter through a vision. Sometimes people will come to me and say, you know, God has told me to tell you, yada, yada, yada. Right? And my response is always, thank you. Thank you very much. If, if that's really God, he'll tell me too. God has my address. He has my Instagram account. He has my email. He has my Facebook contact. Uh, he can DM me. You know, oftentimes, um, well-meaning people, completely convinced in their own mind, will come and say, God has given me a word or God has uh, given me a prophecy. And they'll speak it forth. But it never comes to pass. First Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21 says, Do not despise prophecies. Test all things and hold fast that which is good. And we need to be careful when people come to us like that, right? We're not to despise prophecy, but we need to be careful and not hang our hat on what they have to say also. God will confirm it to you what other people are speaking to you if that truly is him, right? Especially if what he's, if what he's speaking to you is to move you in a direction he wants you to go. Uh, we're to receive the prophecies. And then we're to test them. And we're to wait on God to confirm it before you act on it. Verse 21, Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel uh, to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Peter asked these men uh, in to his place to spend the night. And we don't actually realize just how unusual this is. This was completely beyond uh, unthinkable from the Jewish point of view. I mean, you don't just lodge Gentiles, right? That would defile your house. But Peter is beginning to understand that God is breaking down walls. I mean, you have an apostle staying at a tanner's house. They're both Jews, but the tanner is unclean because he, he handles dead animals. Uh, a tanner's house had to be at least 50 feet outside of the city. In fact, the Mishnah said if you were married to uh, a tanner, you could actually divorce them. You had the right to divorce them. So you have an apostle, a tanner, two Gentile servants, and a Roman soldier. I mean, uh, all in one house together. It's comical. It sounds almost like a sitcom on TV, doesn't it? Uh, would you ever put a group like this together? But isn't that just the way our God does things, right? He often puts uh, people together who wouldn't normally get along. He does it uh, just so he can do something great. Just so he can do the unthinkable just so that he can accomplish something wonderful. And we'll see that next week, Lord willing. But I think the lesson the Lord would have us take away from this study this morning is a very important one. 
if you're struggling this morning, he would have you trust in him. If you're feeling condemned this morning, he would encourage you to run to him. I fully believe that God wants to do a great work in and through each one of us. Right? We just need to surrender our hearts to him. Right, let's press in and ask the Lord to use us mightily for his glory. I mean, look around. Look to your right. Look to the left. Look at that person next to you, right? We're a small and fairly motley crew. But God has shown himself willing to do so much more with so much less. Let's pray. Let's press in. Let's seek the Lord for what he wants to do. Let's expect great things from our great God as we step out in faith and attempt great things for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you again for this study. And Lord, I just pray that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, to everybody that watches online, everybody that sees this, um, on our website later, I pray you would speak to our hearts and you would reveal to us just your great love for us. Lord, reveal to us how you've cleansed us, how you are in the process of sanctifying us, how you've justified us and now sanctifying us. Lord, you're so good to us. We love you. We give you praise. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.